well, I guess a couple of them were flirting. Like uh, one of them later called Arnold for my phone number, and he he wouldn't give the guy my phone number. And but I think a lot of them actually were looking like to recruit a shuffle tracker. You know, they they like maybe maybe I can make some money off this woman. Risk of Ruin is a podcast about gambling and life and their intersection. I'm John Reeder. This is episode 19. What are the odds? The voice you heard at the top of the show belongs to Radar. She's an advantage player and something of a specialist at tracking shuffles. Even if you don't know anything about shuffle tracking, you can probably guess what it is from the name. Take the same idea that underlies card counting in blackjack, i.e. high cards favor the player and low cards favor the casino, and then try to follow groups or slugs of cards through the shuffle. Oh, but you know, it would be, it would be terribly, terribly exhausting. I mean, if you, if you think about this, so you've, you've got the count on a slug and you know where the location of the slug is and you have to monitor that. You've got to kind of keep an eye on the stack and keep an eye on where your slug is. And then, you know, let's say you're playing a two pass shuffle. You know that at a certain point in the shoe, say at the two deck point, though the cards from the two deck point to maybe the two and a half deck point, your, your slug is going to get married to those cards. So you're, you're keeping not only the count of your slug, but you're watching the edge of your slug. If, they, if the dealer grabs into your slug a little bit, are all your high cards going get, to get pulled away? Were all the high cards at the top of your slug? Or were all the high cards where she didn't nip into? You know, you, you, you have to watch not only the count of your slug, but the edges of your slug. The, the, the order of the cards going into your slug, the order of the, the cards going into a, like a likely marriage partner area for your slug. And you'd actually be watching the entire thing. Like, like one thing that I absolutely loved would be like, let's say we were playing a 13 card slug in a two pass shuffle. I would really pay attention to the, to the, to not only the count of the 13 cards, but the order of the cards, especially near the edge of the slug and and the and the beginning of the next slug so that I would know if the dealer grabbed a little big or a little bit small, I would know what the count was. And then I would watch the first marriage partner area. And I'd be and the best thing that could possibly be happen would be if you let's had a really negative, you had 10 extra high cards in the first 13 cards. Maybe the edge was completely neutral. Then the edge of the next 13 cards is neutral. And then you have 10 low cards in a row because the one thing, the one place that those cards would never get married to was the cards right next to them. So it it all, it all depended on exactly what the play the the dealer did in the shuffle, but you were memorizing so much stuff. To say that radar is a specialist at tracking shuffles might be underselling it. Actually one legend of blackjack says that radar is the best shuffle tracker he's ever seen. This is Arnold Snyder. He's in the Blackjack Hall of Fame, and he knows how good Radar is because they played together, sometimes betting as much as $60,000 a hand. She actually has a better eye for following shuffles than I do. And, um, and she, uh, she was doing more 
<clears throat> she was doing more stuff than I was. In other words, I understood the stuff she was doing because I had read, I had written about it, but I was not as good as her at just uh, at just that uh, just the visual acuity of following exact you know slot like she would actually she would actually also be getting all sort of like the sequences of the cards and the cards above and below the 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 section that you tracked and the you know she was watching for much finer things than I was and uh, and she was better. She was just, I mean, I recognize the very first time we tracked a shuffle, I thought she cut in the wrong place. And it turned out to be a better place than where I would have cut. An important piece of information that I've left out until now is that Arnold and Radar are also married. This episode is the story of how they became professional blackjack players, as well as how they ended up together. If there existed a Mount Rushmore of blackjack authors, it would probably include Ed Thorpe, Stanford Wong, Peter Griffin, and Arnold Snyder. That's a straightforward argument to make because when the Blackjack Hall of Fame was formed in 2002, all four men were in the inaugural class. But one of these things is not like the others. Thorpe, Wong, and Griffin all had advanced degrees in quantitative fields. By contrast, Arnold Snyder spent a little time at Western Michigan, and then he went to work at the post office. I was always good at math, but I didn't really care for math. I just found it totally boring. It's like I took algebra in high school and geometry and then trigonometry. You know, and then senior year, we were supposed to take calculus. I just hated trigonometry so much. It was just so boring. I was like, what a... What does this have to do with anything? You know, sines and cosines and, you know, tangents. And uh, to me, it was just like, this is, has nothing to do with the world. I have no idea why we're doing this. You know, and I did fine. You know, I never had to crack the book. It's like I would could read the chapter and go, okay, yeah, right. You know, and I, I was basically like a B student. I, you know, I never didn't get all A's or anything. I just didn't care for it. Didn't care for... You know, I was more interested in um, in literature. I, I liked reading. I liked reading books. I liked fiction, nonfiction, you know, but, you know, math I didn't care about. In the 70s, Arnold picked up a copy of Ed Thorpe's Beat the Dealer, and it sent him down the rabbit hole. Well, I read this book, and I understood the book, and I understood the math in the book. I understood how he was saying he was doing what he was doing, and I just thought, you know, wow, you know, here I'm working for the post office for, you know, however much per hour, I could probably do this. Is it, can you really do this? Is it really possible you can walk into casinos and make money playing blackjack? I mean, it just seemed unreal. And, and so I decided, you know what, I'm going to have to, I was living in, um, in the Bay Area at that time. And I think, you know, Reno was a few hours drive, like a three hour drive away, three, three and a half hours, something like that to get to Reno or, or Lake Tahoe. And, uh, you know, cause I had friends that would drive up there and go gambling, you know, once in a while. And I never had any desire to go. I felt like, oh, who wants to waste money? But suddenly I felt like, you know what, I got to go look at these games. And I did. I just started driving up to to Reno on the on the weekends and looking at the games. And meanwhile, I was reading books and st- you know, I you know started going to bookstores and and uh, this was pre internet. There was nothing. There was no online anything. 
but I just started, I, I found there were more books on the subject and, and I started buying more books on the subject and reading the different systems and figuring out, you know, the, like the value of them. And there was a whole lot of stuff I couldn't find in the books, but that I was able to figure out. Despite his lack of formal training, Arnold is an important figure in the history of Advantage Play. He wrote books like Black Belt in Blackjack. He ran an influential newsletter. He invented card counting systems. And he published important books by other authors. Whatever Arnold might have lacked in formal training, he made up for with a good sense of numbers and a natural curiosity. But, you know, it, it's, it really came out to some kind of an innate ability. And especially it seemed to be with like card games, dice games. Like for some reason, when it came down to figuring out how to gamble, I had a real good feeling for how you go about figuring it out. I can't really explain, you know, like how I came to that, but um, because I, I ended up being praised by all kinds of people for like, you know, wow, how'd you come up with that? I was getting letters from like, you know, college professors asking me, you know, they were teaching mathematics going, how did you come up with this? And how'd you come up with that? And, you know, and I would have to, I don't know how I came up with it. It just looked like it would work. And I tried it and it worked. Arnold's natural curiosity also led him to other games like poker and Sudoku. I've always enjoyed puzzles, you know, puzzles and, and things like that. Um, you know, it just so I, like, you know, like I, I wrote a, uh, a series of books on how to solve Sudoku puzzles. You know, that Sudoku kind of fascinated me when it first came out. And I, I actually um, I made an Excel spreadsheet for creating Sudoku puzzles. And so, you know, wrote a number of books that contain Sudoku puzzles, d difficult ones, easy ones and, you know, solving methods and things like that. And that was just, that's just completely separate. It's just sort of like, you know, I, I thought Sudoku was kind of interesting. And, you know, so I wrote some about it. Arnold married his first wife when they were both very young. It was the kind of thing where it was all fun and games until life got very real. So the marriage didn't last long. And the fact that Arnold was supporting two households meant that he didn't have the money to play the games he was writing about. It's like, I didn't really have any money. At this point, uh, at this point in my life, I was uh, I was um, divorced from my first wife. We had two kids. Um, I and my daughter was living with her. My son was living with me and my wife didn't have a job. And so I was supporting both households on a, a letter carrier's salary. I was a, still a postman. And um, so I really didn't have any money. And, you know, so these trips to Reno, I would take, I would literally go with a hundred, sometimes 200 bucks to gamble with. Now, all of the casinos had $1 blackjack games. So I felt like, oh, who needs more than a hundred? You know, I can play $1 games, <laughs> you know, but, uh, you know, it was like, by the time I figured out these formula, the, this formula for figuring it out, and then I would, <laughs> I would apply it to the games I was playing. I realized, okay, well, this game here at, uh, at Harris Tahoe I can make 73 cents an hour at the, at the rate I'm playing. And it was like, I, I, so I started to realize, okay, this is idiotic. You know, why would I do this? You know, it's like, I don't have enough money to play these games. And um, 
you know, and I couldn't, I saw no way to suddenly come up with the money because I realized, okay, if you're going to play blackjack and you want to do it, say, professionally, uh, so that you can literally make enough money to live, uh, you know, geez, you know, you should have, you really would like to go in there with like about 10,000 bucks so that you can make $100 bets. You want to be able to spread your bets from, you know, I was playing all single debt games at that time. Uh, but you want to just be able to spread from like 25 to 100 bucks. And um, and then you can get, you know, a decent, a, a semi-decent amount of a living out of it, assuming you can get enough hands per hour and, you know, these various other factors. But I had no way of coming up with 10,000 bucks. It's like I was kind of living paycheck to paycheck. And um, so I thought, well, you know, I can probably sell this formula. Arnold's first contribution as an author was a self-published book that he made at a copy mart. He took existing blackjack literature and synthesized a formula that could estimate the value of any game. But I just started getting, I sent them out and they reviewed the, got reviewed in all the blackjack newsletters and the gambling publications. And, um, and I just started getting orders at a hundred dollars a copy. And um, I think like the first, you know, first month or so, it's like I made 3000 bucks. I was like, oh my, this is crazy. You know, just selling a, a, a mathematical formula. And, um, and at that point I decided, you know what, uh, forget the, um, forget playing blackjack. I, you know, this is the way to make money on this. Jeez, I can't make $3,000 in a month playing unless I have a huge bankroll. Blackjack provided Arnold with a side business. And in return, he spent his time advancing the study of the game, as well as supporting the culture of advantage play through his newsletter. I started a quarterly, uh, like a newsletter and uh, called Blackjack Forum. And um, I started reviewing the books and writing, writing my opinions on the systems and, and analyzing things using the formula that I had, um, basically just providing information for card counters uh, it was all pretty much card counter oriented, everything I was doing. And um, I immediately started getting people subscribing. You know, I think I was charging $10 a year, you know, and it was a quarterly. So I had, every three months I'd have to come up with another one. But I got a lot of subscribers and it just turned into a business. I still continued working at the post office for quite a few years after I started that business. You know, I still wasn't playing, but. You know, after like a year or two, I was making enough money on the business to start playing at a higher level. You know, and you know, I could start playing. You know, I first went up to like five to twenty-five dollars, and then I would start going. You know, five to a hundred dollars, and and I could also afford um, trips to. You know, I could go to Las Vegas regularly, go up to Reno regularly. I could fly to Las Vegas and, and get a room. And because it was a business, um, I was able to write everything off. Everything was a business expense. If I went to Las Vegas for a weekend, eh, it was all a business write-off. I wasn't getting rich, but it was sort of like it, it changed my life. I asked Arnold if he ever got pushback for writing about how to beat casino games. 99% of the people that read a book on how to beat a game, they don't do it. They can't do it. 
or they don't put in the effort to do it. Um, you know, it, it takes a, a certain amount of, of studying, memorization, practicing. Um, you know, it's, it's not just like you're going to read a book and go there. Now I can go into the casino and beat them. It's like, no, what you realize is like, okay, first I got to remember all these strategy tra- tables and I've got to remember, learn how to keep the count and I have to keep the count fast and accurate. And I have to, you know, there's a, there's a lot more to doing it than just reading a book. So, you know, yeah, there's always people that go, oh, you shouldn't have told people about that, you know, but the majority of, of the feedback you get is positive. The majority comes from players who go, oh, geez, this is fantastic. I, you know, I never realized you could do this or this is a, this is real helpful. Uh, you know, so it's, not, it's like, yeah, there's always going to be some people that are going to go, oh, how come you told that secret? And, um, you know, it's like, well, so it goes, you know, I, I was, I'm making a buck. Eventually Arnold's writing and publishing allowed him to leave his job at the post office. I worked at the post office for a total of 23 years. This is through three different post offices. I I first worked in San Francisco. Then I worked down in San Diego. Then I worked in Oakland. Um, Combined total, I worked for the post office for 23 years. But by the time I quit, I, it's like, I was so burned out. It's like, by that point, my, my business was doing well. It wasn't because I was making so much money gambling. Um, to me, the gambling was just a side trip. I was making my money by publishing information, publishing the, the quarterly uh, Blackjack Forum, publishing books. I was publishing other, I had a publishing company. I was publishing other people's books also, publishing books by attorneys and other authors and experts on the game. Um, so I had a publishing business going and the money that I was making from the publishing business was more than what I was making at the post office. Yet the post office was taking so much more of my time because it was just, again, this is a full time, you know, 40 hour a week job. And, uh, I, I was just so burned out. It was like, I, I realized I have to give one of these up and definitely was the post office. In the second episode of this podcast, we heard from Richard Munchkin, Daryl Purpose, Mark Billings, and Tommy Highland. They all played with shuffle tracking computers in the 1980s before the devices were outlawed in Nevada. Uh, I just started trying to figure out, well, wait, if you can do this with a computer, you have to be able to do this without a computer. So how do you do it? And so then I started um, uh, trying to figure out how would you be able to tell where the high cards were? And, and I realized, well, this is a, has to be a visual thing. Basically, what you're doing is you're telling the computer, okay, a bunch of high cards went there. Well, to do it without a computer, you just have to look at that, at that section of the discard tray and say, okay, and you, should, you could be able to point to the area where the high cards were. I mean, I worked on it for probably a while um, until I actually then – found out, you know, uh, through trial and error, you actually could do that. You could actually watch where the high cards went in the discards. And when the dealer goes to shuffle them, you watch when he picks that section and he shuffles it. And then where does it go in the, in the, in the final stack? And you just cut to it and the car high cards would come. I was, you know, I was like amazed. I was like, wow, this is incredible. 
you can actually just look for where the high cards are going, follow them through the shuffle, and then cut to them. And they come right off the top. And because once I started doing it, it's like I suddenly lost all interest in standard card counting. There really wasn't much information out about shuffle tracking. I wrote about it for the first time in the mid-90s. I I wrote a series of three articles in Blackjack Forum in uh, 94 and early 95, and then and there had never been a book written about it. And then finally, in uh, I think it was around 2002, 2003, something like that, I wrote a an actual book called the Blackjack Shuffle Trackers Cookbook. And it actually did a it sort of pretty much was based on the three articles I had written in the mid 90s and then added a lot more analysis and, and other information. And that was like about the only book that was out there that really discussed it. There were a couple of sections of a couple of books that talked about it very simplistically. So, you know, it's it's just a uh, it's a strategy that never was all that popular. Again, there were definitely professional players that that's what they were doing. And essentially, they found the same thing I found was that like, wow, you can just play this. There's no heat. You look like a complete idiot at the table. And, you know, the other thing is, is that, you know, uh, on any given session, you can win or you can lose. In other words, just because you track the shuffle doesn't mean you automatically win every session. It's like in the long run, you're going to win. But, you know, your wins and losses go up and down. And uh, so that they can't really they can't really um, just say, well, he, he look at he's winning every time. The, you know, sometimes they'll look at you and go, look, he's got his big bets out there, but he's, you know, he's he's losing his shirt. So Arnold became a surprisingly accomplished blackjack author, although he wasn't a big player. And in the 90s, he shifted his focus to shuffle tracking. Let's switch gears now and hear from Radar. Hers is a story of immense talent, but also talent in search of an outlet. Early in her life, she was obsessed with science and medicine. And so I started winning a lot of awards and getting more scholarships. And I spent a a summer at Walter Reed in one of their labs. And I spent, um, oh, a summer in Decorah, Iowa at a a university there with a, with a professor who had a special interest in neuroscience and, and, uh, and all through, all through college at Harvard, I, I was completely devoted to my, to my my experiments. I, I um, in fact, through that was the way it was in high school too. I, I actually from about from close to the end of freshman year of high school, I actually just stopped going to classes and just mainly focused on doing my experiments. And it was the same at Harvard. At Harvard, I just when I got to Harvard, my freshman year, I immediately immediately started taking uh, doing graduate work. I, w- I was doing seminars and stuff with, you know, with they were gr- for, for graduate students and they were all in different aspects of the neurosciences and whatever biochemistry I needed to to do to do my work. And I just had um, teachers all along who sort of overlooked the fact that I was cutting all my other classes to do this. And I and I to this day, I don't know why they did that, but I was just um, an unusual kid. And everybody sort of helped me along. And I, to this day, I have nightmares 
that they're not going to allow me to graduate from high school because I, I never went to my classes. But they all, they all helped me along. Like they would see me in the hall and tell me about the assignment I had missed because I didn't go to class. And as long as I got the assignment in, they would just kind of keep p- moving me along. They, they, I would get A's and, and uh, they just let me do what I was doing. Radar's fascination with science ran into cold, hard reality. Even if ideally science is the pursuit of the truth, in practice, it is also subject to the influences of money and politics. Radar says that her mentors warned her that science and medicine had become corrupted, and she listened to those warnings. So it was quite a crisis after all of those years of preparation to have literally everyone I admired <laughs> tell me to abandon this field. And... um I did other things. I made a so I, I left Harvard. I wasn't sure what to do. I decided to take a year off, and I made a documentary about the Chicago Board Options Exchange. And at the time, um, one of my professors at Harvard had hooked me up with um, WGBH in Boston. There were a couple of producers there who were doing a series on I, I don't know what it was some kind of business series, something about American capitalism and how how business men make decisions and how market people make decisions. It was sort of like that. Radar's documentary presented an unvarnished look at some of the traders on the CBOE floor. These men used drugs and were happy to brag about the edge they had over retail investors. Unfortunately, no one was really interested in the unvarnished look. Actually, the sponsors of the documentary were expecting a good amount of varnish. I got all this on, on video and I take it to WGBH. They're waiting to see some, some raw footage. And I play it for them. And like their faces go green. And they go, we can't, we can't show this on this series. This series is underwritten by Merrill Lynch. And so it was like, I had, I had made this documentary. And it was like, there was no way on earth that, uh, that they could show it. Because Merrill Lynch wanted something showing that Everyone in America should be buying options to lay off risk. And it was just, it's just complete horse dung. So I, I made that documentary and it was, you know, I had to think that if I really wanted to ever make another documentary, because it turned out that all of that is fake, right? So science had become all fake and public television was now all fake. It was all completely controlled by the advertisers, the underwriters, Radar eventually went to work for labor unions, first in Texas and then in Pennsylvania. She was working for the United Mine Workers when she met some coal miners who played blackjack. Like almost every gambler in the casino, these guys had ideas for how to win, and the ideas were at best half-baked. They were they were all doing things like looking for tables where the ashtrays were overflowing and they believed low cards followed low cards and high cards followed high cards. And they had this whole system that was complete nonsense and gave the casino a huge house house edge. And so I just thought, well, there's there's got to be something better to do than this. I, I, I watched them a couple of times and came home and went online and started doing research. And this was when the internet was still very, very new. It was I literally learned to use the internet to look up a better way to play blackjack. And that's when I found, I found, you know, I found Arnold Snyder's site. And 
I started reading all of his stuff, basic strategy and card counting and his shuffle tracking stuff, and um, or started ordering some books from him and just suddenly realized, well, I, I've got to do this. I've got to protect these coal miners. I'm going to I'm going to learn to count cards and shuffle track. I'm going to cut high cards into the shoe for them. I'm going to cut low cards cards out. I'm going to tell them where the high cards are so they can raise their bet. I'm going to teach them to, to play better strategy. We're, this is what we're going to do. And we did it. We did it for, I don't know, we may have lasted a year doing it. I learned to shuffle track for them. I learned to count cards for them. It, you know, it was just a great learning experience. And I stopped them from losing money. And then I can't even remember what the, what the final thing was, but I just decided to become a pro. Advantage Play turned out to be an unexpected outlet for Radar's talents. She could take the drive to learn, which had propelled her as a student, and direct it at shuffle tracking. When you actually handle physical cards a lot, you know, cards have a lot of um, interesting properties that you can exploit for Advantage Play. And if you're just obsessed with um, handling cards and counting cards and looking at like you know, just simple things like what do six, what, what does a stack of six cards look like? You know, what does a stack of three cards look like? What does a stack of 26 cards look like? You know, and, you know, what do the backs of cards look like? What do the fronts of cards look like? And, you know, if you just uh, obsessively handle cards, you, you learn a lot of stuff that you can use later as a professional player. And so for, sh- for shuffle tracking, Arnold had some exercises. He had he, right, he has a, a shuffle tracking book out, but before that, he'd had a series of articles on it, and I was doing all the exercises in 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 the series. You know, you um you color a deck of cards red on one side, and then you put them in a in a in a stack and put the card put the the stack of cards through a shuffle, and and you basically see if you can cut to the to the colored cards, and you know you can't see them while you're shuffling. And so I would just I was just literally putting colored cards into a deck of cards and shuffling and shuffling and shuffling and shuffling and shuffling, endless shuffling. And then I got into doing it with um, different shuffles and different sizes. Uh, you know, instead of twenty six colored cards, I'd use thirteen. I'd use six. I would put them in different places in the shoe and see if I could follow them through different shuffles. And just really studied how shuffles work. And got really good at tracking shuffles. Like, for example, we'd go to the Tropicana in Atlantic Atlantic City, and I'd been practicing at home all week. And so they would get me the cut card. I would cut. And then what I I was starting to do was bet on their hands. Like, I didn't want to play through negative portions of the shoe. But when we were in my slug, I wanted to play. So they would have their bets out and I would have quarters and I just start like betting on top of their hands when they were in my slug. So I could, you know, my money was, was, was at stake. My money was at stake and I was trying to build a bankroll and I really wanted to be right. I really wanted to make money. So, and also it's much easier to track in a casino because when you're shuffling yourself, you're trying to be real, real honest. You're not leaving any shadow lines you know, you want to be able to, you know, track those cards without any sort of um, clues from the handling of the cards. But where, when a, when a dealer in a casino is shuffling cards, you know, she's just 
She takes two two grabs of cards, riffles them together, sticks them in the in a in a in a pile, then takes the next grab, stick them on there. There's all kinds of shadow lines on the stack, and so you can see. Okay, this was the start of one grab. This was the start of the next grab. This is the start of the next grab. You know, you you can you can see where your cards are through you know through the whole process of the first shuffle, and if there's a second pass, you've got to go through it again. I mean, I put together uh, my bankroll, you know, playing weekends in Atlantic City, betting a quarter during during my slugs. So I, I didn't have a lot of money to play with, and it just grew very fast. It grew very fast. I'm, I'm not even going to say what I think the real edge was, but it's very high and very low flux. Eventually, Radar made her first connection with Arnold Snyder. He needed an Atlantic City reporter for his newsletter. And it was a perfect fit for the once aspiring scientist. And she submitted a um, she submitted a report on the Atlantic City Games, uh, you know, which is not what I asked anybody. But she submitted a full report, uh, basically going casino by casino with uh, what the conditions were like, and the you know. And I was like, "This is incredible! This is better than the guy that was doing it." And so I I just called her and said, you know, okay, um, you know, yeah, you're my new Atlantic City reporter. Um, I need your report by such and such, you know, dates and, um, you know, so many words, you know, what you wrote is perfect. This is exactly what I'm looking for. Obviously, you've been reading the magazine for a while. Um, Great. This is this is what I need. And so she was doing that for about a year and a half. And uh, we had never talked. Um, I, you know, in other words, I'd never met her. I don't think we talked on the phone. It was just done through the mail. And then she told me she was traveling across the country. You know, she had, she was, you know, playing in games and she would be in be probably would be arriving in Vegas at such and such a time. And, um, and it was sort of like very shortly after she was arriving in Vegas, there was this annual party that uh, Max Rubin had. It was really in the basement of his house at that time. It was called the Blackjack Ball. I think we were calling it the Blackjack Ball even back then. But it was basically what happened was there were certain times a year where all the card counters would converge on Las Vegas. And one of those times was New Year's Eve because there was so, I mean, all the celebrities were in town. All the sports heroes were in town. The TV personalities were in town. And everybody, uh, you know, all the rooms in the casinos were all sold out. I mean, New Year's Eve was just a huge thing in Vegas. And, they, I mean, the tables were just packed. So the card counters, all the big card counting teams would code it, would definitely be in Vegas because that's kind of conditions that, say, big teams are looking for. They want to be able to blend in. They want so much action on the tables that, that they're not sticking out. Nobody has time to pay attention to, you know, to them. And so uh, Max was having a, uh, a party in the basement of his house, uh, like usually like a day or two after New Year's, after New Year's Eve, after New Year's. And it would just be he'd invite all the big teams and, um, you know, and uh, yeah, other players that he knew. And and um, and we it would just be, you know, just a big congregation of blackjack players just sort of meeting, getting together, talking, meeting other ones, um, talking about the experiences they had where and, you know, exchanging information. 
Well, so he was having one of these parties and I just said to her, I said, hey, you know, there's going to be a really cool party. You probably can meet some a lot of card counters there, might be able to get some information. Um, I'm going to go, um, you know, I can get you a, I, an invitation. It's hard to get invitations, but I can get you an invitation if you want to go. I'll tell him you're my Atlantic City reporter, even though she was no longer going to be my Atlantic City reporter. Radar set out for Las Vegas, hitting as many casinos as she could find along the way. I believe it was Catfish Bend. It was on the Mississippi River. It was in Iowa, I believe. And, oh, they had the most beautiful shuffle, a little one-pass shuffle with the cutoffs topped. And I was always the only woman at the table, so they always gave me the cut card. And that was another game. It was just impossible to lose. So after, like, my third day playing there, a pit boss just came, stood right behind the dealer, and just gave me this just stared at me with his arms folded on his chest. And the next day I left, you know, moved on to the next casino. Eventually, Radar made it to Vegas in time for what has to be an extremely unusual party. The Blackjack Ball is attended by the world's greatest advantage players. So they are the very best at a job most people don't even know exists. And in this unlikely profession, women are even more rare. Although, Radar says that she wasn't the only woman at the party. I remember uh, there was a friend who had just married a woman from Russia. It was literally one of these import a wife from Russia deals. So there was a, a, a very great card counter at the Blackjack Ball that year who had just imported a wife from Russia, and she was spectacular. And then uh, I believe that um, Maria from, from the, the Greeks Blackjack team, she was there. But I think I think it might have just been the three of us and Max Rubin's wife. I'd, oh, and Debbie Highland was there. So yeah, there were five women there, you know, and one of them was the new import from Russia. And the often repeated claim that the house always wins is more approximation than law of nature. But in order to actually know when the player has an advantage, requires careful study of casino procedures as well as the math involved. The players at the Blackjack Ball have spent careers focused on these things. These guys can spit out math on anything you can think of. If it has to do with it, with gambling, right, they, they can just sit, sit there. They calculate for about 10 seconds. You can ask some bizarre question about the edge if you do some bizarre thing on some bizarre casino game. And they'll think for about eight seconds or 10 seconds, and they'll come up with the exact edge, and then they'll give you bankroll advice. Well, the variance will be like this. And they are, they are really smart, and they just have this you know un, unnatural feeling for risk and um, you know just for gambling. And Arnold's exactly the same way. He's just like, you can be in bed in the middle of the night and wake him up and say, what do you think if we do this with this shuffle and we're tracking this many things, what do you think the edge would be? If blah, 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 blah. And, he, and he'll tell you like in the middle of the night, he'll know, he'll know what the edge will be. He'll know what the variance will be. They, like they're just, they are a surreal group of people. And at the same time you go to the blackjack wall and it's a bunch of guys and, and they all dress up right now in the actual casinos, you'll see these guys and they'll look like, you know, maintenance men. They'll be in T-shirts, you know, they'll be in their the grubby torn jeans, you know, but you go to the blackjack ball and everybody is all spruced up and they're all wearing like their only nice outfit. And they're all wearing 
some their trophies, right? They're all wearing Rolexes. They've all got whatever their latest trophy watches from the casinos. The blackjack ball was the first time Arnold and Radar met in person, but things went pretty quickly from there. I hardly talked to her at the party. First of all, I was, I, as soon as I saw her, I was like, oh, wow, this girl is cute. Man, this girl is really cute. You know, she's a, she's a professional blackjack player. That's like such a rarity. There are so few female, you know, professional gamblers. And so, and I really hardly had time to talk to her at the party. The party is crazy. There's so many people there and you're seeing so many people that you only see them once a year because, you know, everybody comes together for this one party. And everybody's trying to meet everybody and talk to everybody. And every time I looked at her, she had like, you know, two or three guys talking to her. You know, she was such a rarity. Hey, a a girl at at this place, you know. But, you know, at the end of the party, I think I drove her back and I said, and I said, well, you know, I'm staying over at the uh, at the Aladdin. I got a uh, I got a room at the Aladdin for the weekend and you know, why don't you, why don't you come by tomorrow? Cause there's some stuff I wanted to talk to you about shuffle tracking and stuff like this. And, you know, and she just said, yeah. And, you know, I basically, I, I was totally smitten. I mean, she was, she was so good looking and she was so funny. She was so smart. I was just like, Oh, you know, this is like the girl of my dreams. Radar says that she was interested in Arnold before they ever met. I mean, I was secretly in love with Arnold Snyder. I had loved him ever since I started reading his writing, right? Like I, I, I had read his book, Black Belt and Blackjack, and there's a, a scene where he's driving over the Sierra Nevada mountains in a car leaking oil, and he's driving over the mountains to like spread from a dollar to $10 on, a, on, a, on single neck deck games in Reno. And I just absolutely fell in love with him. It's like, he doesn't brag. You know, I, I liked that. I liked that. I mean, I had just spent 10 years as a union organizer. I like working people. I like poor people. I, I've never really felt very comfortable with rich people. And, um, you know, I, I just, I really liked that scene. There was no, no pretentiousness. So Arnold invited me over to talk the next day. And I mean, I had blackjack questions I wanted to ask him. I was trying to I was trying to make a living playing blackjack. I had a thousand questions. And, you know, I also, I, I, I was interested in hooking up with other players, maybe forming a team. And, you know, I wanted advice on potential teammates. And so I, I, I couldn't wait to meet him. And I went to his, uh, I went to his, his hotel room, which turned out to be this gigantic suite like our, our the, the living room of this suite is the size was the size of our entire house now, and he had it had like three bedrooms. I don't, there were some some absurd number of bathrooms, like six bathrooms, a separate dining room, a full kitchen. The thing was insane, and most people at that time thought of Arnold as basically a nickel player, just this this starving writer. And, you know, playing, you know, spreading $5 to maybe 100 and And there he is in this suite. And he said, oh, yeah, you know, I'm comp to the suite. And, and um, I was like, okay, so this guy is doing stuff that nobody knows about. And so that was fun, too. And we just talked blackjack for, for three hours over, over some room service chicken soup. And then he told me that he had a girlfriend. So it, we're, we're really hitting it off. And I'm, I'm thinking this is going to be great. 
And then he tells me he has a girlfriend and, you know, maybe we'll talk again someday. And so I'm like, oh, God damn it. At that time, I literally did have um, a girlfriend I was literally planning to move in with. And in fact, we had already rented the, uh, the apartment and had both of us had already started moving our stuff into the apartment. We had to be, you know, we had like another week or so to get all of our stuff moved in. And, you know, I was like, oh, man, this is, you know, what am I going to do? You know, I, I, it's like, I don't want to move in with this girl anymore, you know? And I, you know, I, I went, I called my buddy, I have buddy Sam Case. He, he actually, he went to that same party um, that, you know, I think I drove him there too. But he'd been a friend of mine for years, and I told him, and he said, oh, man, whatever you do, don't move in with that girl. You are going to really regret this. You know, you, you know, you have to look at this as like you found out in time. You just got to get out of this thing. The next day he calls and says he's broken up with his girlfriend, and we make an arrangement to, to meet a couple of weeks later at the Stratosphere to track, to track the shuffle. I love that story, although it's also a little disappointing as a rom-com. I mean, where is the drawn-out will-they-or-won't-they plot? Arnold thought about it for, like, a day, and then broke up with his girlfriend and never looked back. The shuffle tracking session at the Stratosphere was their first date, and they were married a few months later. The beginning of their relationship coincided with a time that Arnold was playing for an investor on a million-dollar bankroll. You know, and he just said, uh, he said, well, you know, I'm, I'm working with this investor and he's got, you know, he's got a crew of players right now that he's putting up the money for and uh, he's looking for others. And, I'm, and um, you know, it's my understanding you're not really barred anywhere. You're not in Griffin. You're not in Biometrica. You're not really a known player. In fact, everybody that I've talked to said that they think you probably play nickels and dimes and, you know, you're not really a serious player. And I said, well, you know, I really never have been much of a serious player at, at say, the kind of stakes, you know, what you're talking about. I don't I don't play ta- table limit bets. I don't play $500 bets, you know. And the other thing is, is I was, I was also very involved in the publishing business. So I was not a full-time player in any sense. I was someone that, like, Oh, a couple times a month, I would go, you know, take a trip to Vegas or Reno or someplace. And, and I'd play for, you know, for a weekend, you know, maybe get 10, 12 hours of playing. But that'd be it. It's not like I was constantly out there. I wasn't, I wasn't uh, part of any of the big teams or anything like that. I was a writer. And, um, you know, he thought it was, he thought, you know, well, you know, this guy's, He's interested in putting money behind people, and you look like you're—you'd be pretty good, you know. Your your name is clean, you know. The, you know, your real name's not Arnold Snyder, so you should be able to just. Because the thing is that to play at that kind of a level, you can't get a, a fake uh, ID card from a casino and say this is who I am. Um, you know, if you're if you're going to play at that level. You've got to you've got to put money in the cage. You know, you've got to put front money up. You've got to wire them. You know, here, look, I'm wiring you five hundred thousand dollars. Put this in the cage. 
And when I come to town, I'm just going to write a marker. And they just say, you know, so that when you go and sit down at the table, they come and say, uh, you know, uh, how much would you like? And you say, uh, well, uh, give me 100,000. And you sign a marker for 100,000. They give you 100,000 in chips. The big bankroll gave Arnold the opportunity to play for high stakes as an invited guest of the casino with additional concessions like loss rebates. Any loss rebate will effectively lower the casino's edge, but depending on the rules, the rebate can actually swing the odds in favor of the player. So Arnold and Radar had another tool in their toolbox. Sometimes they were going after the shuffle, and sometimes they were exploiting the terms of the rebate. Like when you start playing at really high stakes and you are playing two pass shuffles, you know, and you're maybe doing rebate plays where you're deliberately looking for high variance, then it's um, casinos will be much more confused about whether you have an edge or not. But if, you know, one of the problems we had is uh, when Arnold and I started playing together was that you, you just almost couldn't lose on a, on a one pass shuffle. We went to the um, Tropicana in Atlantic City, and they had this dream one-pass shuffle. And I mean, Arnold just couldn't lose. He just went down there, and he'd you know he'd make ninety thousand one day, he'd make you know eighty thousand the next day. He couldn't lose. They they get sick of you real fast when you absolutely can't lose. The actual tracking of shuffles was mentally taxing, as Radar says. They limited their sessions. So she had time to recuperate. You know, so there's just kind of a natural rhythm to it. You find a slug, you play the slug, you you recycle the slug, maybe you recycle it again, you find a better slug, you play it again, you recycle it again, and by then you're getting tired and you try to leave something set up and you take a break. So that's what we would do. And we would usually do usually two, two sessions like that a day. And maybe, um, so we would go for a weekend and we would play, you know, maybe um, Friday night we'd do one two and a half hour session and maybe Saturday we would do two of those sessions and then on Sunday morning we would do one more session and then, then, then leave and go catch our flight home. In previous episodes, we've heard from card counters that sleep in crappy hotel rooms or in their cars or even in casino bathrooms. But as high rollers, Arnold and Radar had a much different experience. The casinos rolled out the red carpet and gave them things like suites, dinners, comp airfare, and sometimes shopping trips. At, at first, it's kind of fun. Like, we got, like, these great tickets. You know, we got great seats to see the Rolling Stones. Or um, Arnold got a comp he really liked. He got to, they had Muhammad Ali come in. And there was, um, we were given a, um, I can't remember what kind of a, like a print. I don't know what what it was. It was a special limited edition something or other a painting of Muhammad Ali, and it was signed by Muhammad Ali and the artist right there. And Muhammad Ali talks to you. Yeah, Arnold liked that because he had always admired Muhammad Ali. After a while, you know, you you know, you'd, you get a couple of those things. We're really, you know, just very plain people, really. Like. They gave us a Neiman Marcus shopping trip. There's not a there's not a thing in that whole store that I want. You know, like you know, we're so plain. You know, we're just really um, we like a simple life. We have like a, all we ever really need more of is bookshelves. The disappointing truth about advantage gambling is that it is dominated by repetition and monotony. But Arnold says that playing on the big bankroll with radar was an adventure. 
it's not like the kind of say grind that say poker players get into where they literally they they play 12 15 hours a day for days and days they go without sleep they you know it's like um you know this was a thing where we would take a trip you know and we would go to uh um you know whatever a casino and we would be at that casino for two or three days and we would do, you know, three or four or five gambling sessions of an hour to a few hours each. And meanwhile, we're just enjoying the, the um, you know, the suite they put us up in. And, you know, we'd get like jacuzzi suites. And, you know, if you put a lot of money in the cage, they, they treat you really well. You know, we just got, you know, we always had room service, breakfast, lunch and dinner. You know, occasionally would eat in the restaurants. We, but we really were hooked on room service. We just liked them. Yeah, come on up, feed us up here. Yeah, we're not going anywhere. We're, you know, we're in our pajamas, you know. <laughs> and, um, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd swim in the pool and, and um, you know, do other kinds of weird sightseeing things occasionally, you know, depending on where we were. You know, we went and watched the, the, the Penguins March in, in Melbourne when we were in Australia. So it was, always, it was always an adventure for us. And then even playing at that kind of money, you know, the amount of money was, was like sort of like beyond both of our, our normal lives to be able to, you know, say, you know, betting tens of thousands of dollars on, you know, a single hand. And then and it was just the fun of pulling it off. You know, we were we got into this this groove of entertaining each other. We were both card counters and we both understood what was happening. We both understood when when the bets had to be raised and we both understood when the bets had to go down. And so there was a there was sort of like almost like a little bit of a competition between us to see, okay, who can come up with the reason why we're going to suddenly raise our bets here? You know, and, and she might suddenly say, um, oh, that that's a that's a dumb bet, a bunch of black chips like that. Let's make it festive, you know, put some of these colored ones out there and put the, you know, and it was or, you know, it was like we would just try to think of different ways of of coming up with excuses for the craziest things that we were doing at the table. It was very different from, say, the way normal card counters, the normal card counters are always trying to stay under the radar. They're trying to sort of get in and get out without anybody noticing. And, you know, whereas we were in a completely different space, we were like trying to be noticed. You know, we were just we were just having fun. We were like and they just thought, you know, they thought we were just rich people that didn't care anything about the money, that were basically just, just you know, trying to have a good time. Arnold and Radar played on this big bankroll for a couple of years, but eventually they moved on to other things. We knew how to do a lot of other plays. We, we didn't have to do a very high variance blackjack play at very high stakes. For our share of what we were earning, we could do other things with an even higher edge at lower stakes that where we were much less, where we were much more invisible. So we were always like, we we wanted to preserve future opportunities. It was just, it was just a natural time to stop. And we immediately started doing, so we stopped the gigantic plays and we immediately started doing other plays. The other plays weren't little plays. I mean, we were still playing like a thousand a hand, 
but we had a much higher edge on them. We were doing some um, a, a play they call the turn, and it, it's you know just a wickedly good play. And and so we just you know we decided to play on our own money. That way we could we could keep our wins and we preserved our opportunities. And that's what we wanted to do. Arnold and Radar are unlikely individuals. They are anomalies. He's a letter carrier turned gambling analyst. She's a scientist turned advantage player. They're also both odd in a very satisfying way because it's heartening to encounter people that are clearly not the result of a cookie cutter. I want to say that they're also unlikely as a couple, except that I think I might be making a mistake in estimating the probabilities. Actually, it's possible they're a very likely pair. I don't, I don't even know how to describe it. He is the most calm, sane person who has ever existed on this on earth. I have never seen him stressed out even one time, no matter what kind of horrible thing was happening. And, you know, we've been together for over 20 years now. So, I mean, I got cancer at one point. And, um, you know, the, the guy is so calm and so confident and so optimistic and so easy, so easy to be with. Okay. And so, so kind. He's so kind to everyone. And I'm more like nervous, edgy, a tendency to get stressed out, um, a perfectionist, um, not on everything, but a perfectionist definitely when it comes to something like tracking a shuffle. We have complementary abilities. Like, so if you develop a health problem, okay, like I, I, I have a background in science. So I will simply look up scientific studies until I know how to solve your, your health problem. And I do that. I've, I've solved health problems for Arnold. I've solved health problems for me. You know, so it's like, we just have complementary skills, you know? We, he's, he's very laid back, doesn't worry about anything, and I worry about everything, and we, he calms me down, and I take care of him, so that's how it works out. And I just, also, he's just the cutest thing. Risk of Ruin is written and produced by me. Special thanks to Arnold Snyder and Radar. To learn more about their careers and some of their other plays, I highly recommend Arnold's most recent book, Radical Blackjack. The book includes some detail on the play that Radar referred to as The Turn, which is also sometimes called Edge Sorting. I also want to thank Richard Munchkin for putting me in touch with Arnold. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can send an email to riskofruinpod at gmail.com. Or reach out on Twitter at Half Kelly. <laughs>